What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today on the show, we've got one of my favorite email marketers and arguably the funniest marketing Twitter account to follow. We're joined by Summer Oase. She's a top email pro and female entrepreneur based in Karachi, Pakistan. She designs email strategies and writes email copy for SaaS and e-com clients with a simple goal, increase conversions and reduce churn. She isn't your average consultant, though. Summer is a model of courage and heart, known for being fiercely independent and doing excellent work, caring about results, and always telling the truth. She's worked with big brands like Drip, Pinterest, and HubSpot, as well as solopreneurs like Paul Jarvis, Fix My Churn, Copy Hackers, and a growing list of smaller e-com businesses as well. She runs an awesome newsletter where she picks email fights and questions the status quo of how things are typically done in the email world. And she also runs an e-com bootcamp to help folks become email pros. Summer, we're super grateful to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to start off with a, kind of a career question here. Uh, yeah. I read that you actually did the opposite of what a lot of uh, my friends did who kind of started in email and then ended up moving out of email into content marketing, but it sounds like you did the opposite. So give us a long story on the, on the pivot from content marketing to email. Yeah, absolutely. So my story starts in December, 2007, right? I got married, moved to the UAE. I graduated, got married and moved to the UAE within 10 days of these things happening. Right. And so I am in a new country. I don't know anybody. And the original plan is that I look for a job. But it's early 2008. The recession hasn't hit UAE yet. And everything is inflated and like hunky dory. So I start interviewing for jobs. They keep asking me this one weird question Do you have a driver's license? And I'm like, no, but I just moved here. I can get it. And there were a lot of times I would get these answers like, okay, let's talk when you have it. So I finally complained to my husband, like I get, keep getting asked this weird question and he's like, oh crap, I didn't even think about it. Let's go get you enrolled. So we go to sign me up for driving lessons and just the wait time to start my driving lessons is six months long. And so I have this six month period where I'm basically twiddling my thumbs. And so back in Karachi, I had a friend who was an editor for a Sunday magazine and she and I were going to a stand-up comedy show. And she ended up having to cancel at the last minute. And she asked me, if you're still going, can you please cover it for the magazine? Because that's what I was supposed to do. And so I did it as a favor to a friend. And I forgot all about it. Like, it's a favor. You know, you don't think about it. But three weeks later, there's a check in the mail. And so now I'm thinking if there's money in writing in a country like Pakistan, there's bound to be something online or in Dubai. Right. And so I run a Google search for writing jobs online, find a website that is paying me $10 per article. And I think I've heard hit Pater, right? I am thinking I'm gonna be rich in no time. This is awesome, <laughs> $10, that's so much money. What had really hit though was a content mail. And I quickly realized what a dead end that was. But fast forward to when I finally get my driver's license like nine, 10 months later, I failed twice by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, the freelance bug had bitten me, right? So I was, I didn't want to pursue getting a full-time job anymore. And so that kind of started my trajectory as a content writer, because articles were my first introduction to writing jobs. But by 2017, I'd written for clients like Paul Jarvis, MetLife, Aetna, 
uh, intercontinental Marriott articles were like, I was writing them and I was being paid good money, right? Uh, when I quit being a content writer, I was being paid a thousand dollars per blog post. And um, I was burned out and unhappy and did not want to get, you know, sit, uh, did not want to get out of bed in the morning. Like I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh crap, I, I have to work. Let's just find something else to do instead. So around that time, Joanna, we launched 10x freelance copywriter, which was a business course for freelance writers, right? And I was like, if there's anybody who can help me figure this situation out, it's Joe. And so I enrolled in the course, I started doing the work, and I quickly realized that, yes, I'm burned out as a content writer, but it's also that I am done being a content writer. Like I always say, content writers have a shelf life, mine was 10 years. And I, after that, then, you know, it's like writing is the only thing I'm good at. I haven't taken a full-time job, like, because I've been freelancing. And so what do I do now? And if not content, then the only thing left is copy. And so one of the smart things I did was I started experimenting with different types of copy, right? I didn't sit down and wait and to find work. I just started, like, I treated my own business as, as my first client. So I wrote website copy, sales pages, landing pages, pretty much cried my way through all of them. Um, but then in that course, I met the amazing Val Geisler and she was looking for subcontractors and she knew that I was experimenting with different types of copy, trying to find my new specialization. And so I reached out to her and I said, Val, I've never written emails before, but I'm a fast learner and I don't make the same mistake twice. Will you please take a chance on me? And she did. She gave me two weeks to write a re-engagement sequence for a course creator. And that first week I was just researching, right? Six to eight hours, flat out research on emails and re-engagement sequences. And I was the happiest I've ever been. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm not a morning person, but I was waking up at 8 a.m. with a spring <laughs> in my step. Um, and so by the time I turned in that first email sequence to Val, I knew that I'd found uh, my, my copy passion. Very so cool. that has been my journey. And honestly, you're the first person to tell me, Phil, that you have friends who phased out of email into content. I've never met anybody who's done mm. that. Plenty of copywriters, like content writers who now specialize in email, but um, that's the first I'm hearing. That's a super cool story. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Val as well. Like when I was uh, in the early days of learning email marketing, like her, I think like dinner party strategy, like is something yeah. that I still think of like on a daily yeah. basis when I do onboarding emails. So yeah, huge fan of, of Val. That's an awesome story. Um, something that I have actually learned from you from, from reading like your, your tweets and, and listening to Paz podcast has been, uh, like changing my stance on discounts in emails. And I, I wouldn't say that like you're, you're anti-discounts, but like it discount, like definitely gets a bad rep because like they eat away at your profits. They give you kind of this like bargain brand perception. Maybe they attract shoppers that are like more deal focused. Do you ever make exceptions to this kind of like no discount rule? when you're writing email sequences, um, especially for kind of like D to C, how, how do you handle email marketing without using discounts, especially like in a company that has a sales team and maybe they're already doing a ton of like discount emails and they're like attributable to revenue right now. So how, how do you handle that? Oh, so there are instances where I'm okay with the discount, okay. right? But before I get into that, I want to say my stance with discounts is use it as a reward rather than a bribe. Right. So I am anti offering a 20% discount to sign up for our newsletter 
Because what you're doing is basically training your audience to shop from you when there is a discount. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody knows e-commerce brands run promotions, right? They've, there are very few brands around who, are, who don't run promotions or only run one or two promotions a year. Um, and so let's reward their good behavior with a discount. So discount for a second purchase, I'm all for it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but, and there are so many other ways to provide value, right? And my favorite um, story to tell any, but any brand that reaches out to me is about a skincare brand that I consulted with. They had like a trial pack that they were, um, that was free for customers, but the customers only had to pay shipping and shipping was, I think, $7. The conversions were abysmal. Mm -hmm. Right. And nowhere near what, what their website traffic and you know, was coming in at. And so we flipped the script. We priced the trial pack at $14, made the shipping free and conversions soared and they ended up making a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And so we need to find out what is important to your customers because a discount isn't always necessarily what they want. Right. So especially for skincare brands, their customers had acute skin problems that they were coming in for. So they needed the reassurance that this will work rather than a discount. And so for that brand, the free shipping just, you know, converted like gangbusters. Um, yeah. Sorry. I tend to go off on tangents. Uh -huh. Yeah. Sorry, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, one of the things that I was thinking as you're talking about discounts, like I know Phil and I have been in the driver's seat so many times when sales comes down at the end of the quarter, we need to make some more sales. And I love what you're articulating here, which is, you know, you got to find the value. What do you find? What do you find kind of works, I, I guess, uh, instead of a discounting strategy? Like when somebody says, let's do some discounts, what do you go back with and say, okay, let's, what is the value that you think that you, you would, you would pitch a client, for instance? So I always ask them why a discount, right? And, and my thing with email strategy is always asking questions. I ask so many questions. Like I, I always worry people will get annoyed, but lucky nobody does, right? <laughs> so I'm like, why do you feel like, you know, um, offering a discount is a good thing? And so I want to hear what they're thinking. What, what context do they have that I might not have? And the other question I ask is, okay, so if you want to offer a 20% discount, how much is it eating into your profits? Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, somehow this is not a question that apparently email strategists ask. And maybe it's because I work with smaller brands over the past year, but it is a very, I'm, I'm very comfortable asking this question, mm -hmm. right? And the reason, like they already know how much I charge. It's, I'm not asking because I want to know how much I can charge them, right? Mm -hmm. I want to know because I want to make sure that they're making the maximum amount of money from uh, their uh, business. And so a lot of times brands will realize that the discount is actually eating into their profits. And I'm like, we can always come back to a discount, but let's try other things. And my favorite thing is like the, the fastest way, like a value-based offer is free shipping. Then there are quizzes. Mm -hmm. There are, and, and I was like, if you're still gung-ho on discounts, bundle things up, right? Yeah. Offer a discount on, on, on stuff that would increase your average order value. So subscription services, bundles, buy one, get second and half price, things like that. Um, so I'm not anti-discount. I'm just anti-discount at, at that first customer touch point and be anti I don't want to offer discounts on like individual products. I would much rather bundle it up. The only time I do not contest or have that discussion with brands about offering a discount is when they're super new and they're building their email list. Mm -hmm. That's when I'm like, okay, you need to build your email list quickly 
let's slap on a 20% discount. And, and But we need to decide a hard number where we're going to stop doing that and start experimenting with other offers. And for newer brands, that's usually about 15, 20,000 subscribers, right? When you hit that number, you have enough email subscribers to start to keep making money from your emails, mm-hmm. but also start experimenting with your opt-in offers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Makes a lot of sense. Something that you mentioned there is that like, when you meet a new company, a new client, like, and you're talking about emails, you ask a lot of questions and something that you've tweeted about before that um, I think is really cool is that like everyone at the company should own email. Um, And, you know, I've been part of like small teams, like small startups that like, it's kind of like, um, like I can see it happening, like practically everyone can have a a say in email, but in bigger teams. And I know like some of your, your clients are like much bigger companies. How do you operationalize? that with like all the growing opinions because as we know like everyone is an email expert right yeah yeah oh god so i have a thing (laughs) called daisy um a daisy is basically d-a-c-i and i learned it from joanna weeb it's a driver approver contributor informed person right so the driver is usually me because i'm driving the project the um approver is who the person that one person who gets final say right um contributors are the people that need to be involved that i need information from that need to send me stuff that i need and all of that and they obviously need to be involved because they need to know what i'm doing in order to understand what they need to send me and all of that right and informed is usually the founder or the ceo they have no involvement with the project but they just want you know they're included so that they know what's going on mm-hmm. it's something i pull up on my project kickoff calls Right. And I'm like, listen, the smoothest projects are the ones that are the most organized. And this is something that we need to figure out. So let's hash it out on this call and figure out who is going to be the driver, approver, um, contributor and informed. And it has never failed me. Right. So what it does is because I'm setting up an approver as a single person, that person is my point of contact. So, yes, I want the contributors on the calls so that we can make strategic decisions but it's the approver that I am working with when it comes to giving me feedback, when it comes to making specific decisions. So that is how I handle it on, in bigger companies. In smaller companies, especially e-commerce brands, everybody's on a call because the founder doesn't always have the full picture of what's going on, right? So somebody else is handling the email, they will pull them, that person in, onto the call. Um, and if, again, I am offering, I'm saying no discounts, they will pull in the operations manager or whoever um, and ask, ask them, like, we need the numbers, right, to make decisions about this. So it's, it's easier for smaller brands, there's no denying it, but um, the DACY has worked brilliantly and beautifully on companies of HubSpot size. So I trust my process. I love, I love that framework. I think a lot of people get value from following that along. Um, kind of related to that is something I've experienced in my own, my own career and, and seen with other companies I've worked with is just a spaghetti mess of emails that are going out to customers. And um, when we talk about opera, operationalizing this process, like what is it like as a, you know, as an expert to walk into a company and see, you know, 15 different teams sending hundreds of different emails to a customer all at once. Like, how does that impact the brand? And how do, how do you kind of work to solve those types of uh, issues with companies? So my answer to that is mapping out the email journey. I really don't care who is handling, sending what emails, as long as the email journey is mapped out, 
right? So you could have a company where like one department or one team is handling the onboarding, the other team is handling the retention, right? That's fine. But for the love of God, work together to create an email journey so that at any given point, you know what users have gotten emails, right? So mm-hmm. let's say uh, if a the onboarding emails have gone out and the retention team is now focusing on reactivating unengaged um users like what is the criteria that the onboarding team is setting up for tagging people as unengaged right mm-hmm. um you need to work with the onboarding team for the retention team to figure out what the right system is for recognizing unengaged or lapsed users mm-hmm. and then you start thinking because one of my thing is onboard with long-term retention in mind that means both teams need to work together mm-hmm. and so yeah that's my thing with um with working with you know um larger teams that handle emails um differently very yeah, cool. super smart yeah makes a lot of sense let's uh let's go to the start of that like email journey so when you're mapping that out like a lot of the teams responsible for the earlier pieces of that journey are all about like driving subscribers or driving leads and one of my favorite tweets of yours is uh, when you claim that too many folks are obsessing about growing an email list versus growing traffic that will convert into email subscribers what's the difference like unpack that tweet i want to give you a bit of time to unpack that and what advice do you have for early marketers that are responsible for email and lead gen and like this concept is like very new to them yeah okay so i don't have an answer because this is something that i'm searching answers for myself right and I've, I've been messaging people left right and center do you have an answer because the typical answer I'm getting is paid traffic and I'm like have you looked at the prices of Facebook ads right now mm-hmm. have you looked at the reach that has diminished for Instagram ads and Instagram reach right and um not everybody is on TikTok yet, even though it's converting but how long is it until TikTok gets saturated like Facebook and Instagram did so I don't have an answer, but I do want people to start thinking, and brands especially, to start thinking about growing your traffic. Because you run a Google search on how to grow your email list, and you will find 10 different types of opt-ins to kinds of opt-ins to offer on your list, right? And mm-hmm. all these tactics that are that start after somebody lands on your website. But how are you getting people to land on your website? And this is such a huge problem for early stage DTC brands, especially. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's part who I am. And because I'm so vocal about it for the past year, I've been attracting and working with a lot of women and POC owned brands. And so these are typically bootstrapped brands. They don't have Uh, the funding or the cash that um, a bigger brand would have. And their early stage, their biggest, biggest uh, challenge right now is growing their website traffic. They don't have the money for paid um, traffic, so they need to be scrappy about it. And unfortunately, my work starts after somebody becomes a subscriber. So as a strategist, I get to learn about all their these challenges that they're facing because ultimately it does affect my work. Right? If you can't get subscribers fast enough, my emails will not make you money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
you know, it's, it's an answer that I'm looking for and I wish someone out there has it. Uh, yeah. I think you actually touched on the answer really well. Like I think a lot of like folks that are responsible for email, like come in after there's already existing traffic and then like, let's do pop-ups, let's do opt-in. And like, usually it's like join our email list. That's like the main CTA. And like, yeah. this is how we drive email subscribers, but you touched on something that's like, once you focus on the traffic piece, so let's say like we use Clipfolio as an example here, like Clipfolio owns a lot of keywords around what is a KPI. So if you drive like focus on driving traffic around that KPI, instead of just having like a, a CTA in the middle of that page, that's like join our email list. The CTA could be a lot more relevant to like the page yeah. that that person is on based on the query mm -hmm. that they landed. So like Clipfolio does email courses around KPIs. So like someone would yeah. be a lot more likely to join an email course on what a KPI is is versus like join our kind of generic mailing list. So uh, I, I saw that in a lot of your tweets too, like when you're doing ads towards a specific landing page, like introduce like what the copy and what the emails are going to yeah. be and relate that to the ads itself as yeah. opposed to just being like this generic join our, our newsletter list. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a conversation, right? Email is a communications tool before it's a marketing tool. And so you're starting a conversation in the Facebook ad or the landing page or the opt-in offer. And that needs to continue in your welcome email or whatever email you're sending them after they sign up, because it's we're human beings. We love things to be tied neatly and closing the loop is super important. Um, so if you are, you know, highlighting a particular product on, on your Facebook ad or your landing page and your welcome email is a generic, Hey, here's your 20% discount off. There's a disconnect here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and the subscriber might not be uh, marketing savvy enough to recognize it, but the disconnect will nag them. It will bug them subconsciously. And so these are simple, simple ways to elevate the email experience for uh, subscribers. Mm -hmm. On the acquisition side, just kind of as Phil is talking, it got me thinking a little bit about what I see. Like I, I work primarily in acquisition land on SEO and I see all the time with the smaller brands are now competing with huge brands, like monolithic brands that have like content teams that are bigger than the company yourself that you're working at. And it, it it's actually a bit of a, a arms race, I think, in terms of content marketing and, you know, acquiring as many, as much traffic as possible. But I think one of the things I'm pulling out of what you're saying too is the value equation. Like what is, what is the value, the intimacy of the email communication? It, it really, it, it's not about the, the quantity any, anymore. It's about the quality and the, the authenticity of the engagement. Yeah. So you're obviously really passionate about like making emails better and, and, and helping people like get into emails. And something that you're uh, tweeting a lot about recently is your, your e-com email bootcamp. Yeah. And uh, I started checking it out and I have to say that I love your landing page and I'm going <laughs> to read it out here because I don't know if uh, JT has seen this, but you say on the page, this is not a get rich quick scheme. And I don't teach anything inside this course that you can eventually learn and figure out on your own. I think that like my take on this was that like is a very humble way of saying, yo, I've been doing this for 10, 15 years and I've crammed hundreds, if not thousands of hours of experience and research into what I call highly digestible courses so that I can save you a shit ton of time and help you be a lot better at email. Talk to us about your process for building that email course from scratch. And how did you like maybe decide like what's important enough to cover in that bootcamp? Because obviously you can't cover everything, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, as an email marketer, I focus on email strategy and copy only, right? I don't touch implementation. I don't touch design, nothing. That's my specialization. And when a brand reaches out to me, one of the first things I tell them is, you need to know that I'm not an agency. I don't offer end-to-end email marketing service and I'm services, and I'm strictly email strategy and copy only. I am a, not a good fit for a majority of brands, but I'm like the perfect fit for a select few. And only two to three brands to date have told me that they were looking for an agency and I wouldn't be a good fit. And that's totally legit. Like different brands have different needs, right? So for me, I decided to focus put the focus of the course on the strategy side because I didn't feel like enough people were talking about it. And it was the one conversation that I kept having with brands that were reaching out to me. I was like, yes, you need emails, but like, let's figure out this, the strategy. Like, why are we sending them these emails? What action do we want our subscribers to take? And most importantly, what actions do we want um, sorry, what emails do we want to send people who don't convert? Mm-hmm. Because everybody focuses on conversions, Nobody talks about the 80% or the 90% of people that do not convert, right? That is your vast majority. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to have a plan B for them. And so that was something that I wanted to focus on, right? More thoughtful email marketers or or actually, I wanted to create a community (laughs) that I felt um, included and welcomed in. Let's be honest. I'm a super, super introverted person. I can pretend to be an extrovert, um, which is which is why um, I am, you know, I enjoy podcasts. But then I am I hesitate to ask for help. And when I was breaking, trying to break into the e-commerce world, I was super awkward. I didn't know who to reach out to. And even when I identified people that I knew could help me, I was just too shy to reach out to them. Right. And so I didn't want other people to feel that way. Right. Nobody out there obviously was going Nobody knows you need help unless you ask. And um, the onus is on me for feeling that way. You know, uh, it's just the way I was. And so for me, it was a way to create a safe space for email marketers who might be feeling the same way. And I wanted to geek out over emails without feeling conscious. And so I created like basically a space for myself. Um, But it helped that, you know, so my whole thing was copywriters. It's a course for copywriters who want to specialize in emails, because um, I attended a conference called TCC IRL in 2019 and 2020. And the one thing that I kept being asked about was emails and how to break into emails. And um, when was I starting a course about emails? And I was resistant to the idea because I thought I would hate teaching. Because I'm like that person where I tell you what to do. And if you don't do it, I will get mad. Um, <laughs> I was like, you know, what? that's that's not a very nice position to be in when you're when you're teaching somebody. But I created it. Um, and then I decided to launch a beta version. Right. So what I found in my research and talking to freelancers was that they weren't just interested in learning about emails, but they were also interested in breaking into the world of email. Mm-hmm. So they were facing two challenges. So it's a course about email strategy, but it's also a course about dealing with clients. So I teach them how to run an audit and how to present their audit findings into a report. I teach them how to package the strategy that they're putting together uh, for a brand into a report. I teach them how to write copy and wireframe it, but that the copywriting part is just one workshop out of six. And and then there's a, there's a workshop on, on client deliverables, right? So it's a hybrid of like a of a business slash email marketing course. And um, 
my process for coming up with this was just focusing on the questions that I was being asked by copywriters again and again. Very cool. Talk to me a bit about like the folks that are asking these questions, like that are taking this course. You mentioned they're like copywriters and in, in one of your tweets, I think you mentioned like you love the the value part of like seeing some of these email strategists kind of emerge from, from yeah. the copywriters. What are some of the things that um, are early signs to you that tell you maybe someone has it as like it being the email strategist piece? Yeah. So one of the things that I do after every, after every workshop, I give them an email challenge, right? So it's literally, here's your email challenge. Should you choose to accept it? Okay. Um, and it's a little bit of like, it's a, it takes them about an hour or two hour, but it's, it's an email challenge based on whatever I've taught them. Right. And there's a deadline and all of that. And there's sometimes there's a bonus section to it, right? As a bonus, also do this if you want to no requirement, but, and so the first and the laziest way to get me to notice you is to do the bonus exercise, right? Um, secondly, the one thing I look for is how, I can give you an email challenge, right? And you could follow it to a T or you could start following threads that come up, come up and see how far do you go there? Because email isn't just, you're not never just looking at one thing you are looking at 10 different things that could be the factor in, in increasing conversions, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for that, that person who went the extra mile that was maybe not necessary, but they were following their curiosity and they let me know that they found this interesting, all of that. So marketers or copywriters who follow their curiosity and just follow the thread um, are the ones that I know have a brain for email strategy. Very cool. So that's, that's your ecom bootcamp. Um, you mentioned also that like you, you specialize in, in SAS as well. And, yeah. um, do you, do you see yourself doing a SAS bootcamp course one day? Um, I know you've tweeted about this and I, I totally emphasize, uh, empathize with that. Uh, like when you said that, like, like a SaaS email course or SaaS bootcamp would just be like figuring out how to ask a bunch of questions and pour over a ton of customer research until you find <laughs> the real problem and figure out how to fix it with email. But in all honesty, like many SaaS are completely blind to this. And like, yeah. we don't have to talk about like the importance of understanding your customers because uh, we've harped on that a lot. But like, how do you fix things with email? Can you give us like some practical examples? Yeah, so... The reason there is no SaaS course is because a copy school has a brilliant email course on SaaS. It's where I learned, um, but also because I haven't found a way to articulate my process yet. Mm -hmm. Right. I have a research partner because one of the things I quickly found out was that I know how to do customer research, but I really struggle to identify patterns. It does not come naturally to me. So that's like one excruciating part of my process. And unfortunately, voice of customer research is the biggest part of any SaaS email project. And so I now partner with Hannah Shamji. She is a brilliant, brilliant customer research um, researcher. And the way she does research and the way she identifies themes and patterns and packages up all the, um, all the research is in a way that just makes sense to my brain, right? So I, she and I will hash over her findings and she's just presenting what she found, right? But as she's doing it, I start seeing the email problems. Like, okay, these are the problems that these people are facing. This is how we can solve it with email. And by the end of it, I have strategic recommendations that I can present to the brand. And a lot of times 
what we find are bigger business problems, mm-hmm. right? So we ended up, the project that I did for HubSpot, we ended up telling them there are certain changes that you need to, you need to make to your program. And based on these findings, these are my full recommendations for you. And um, one of the things that I am very vocal about is you need to tell me which of these you can realistically implement, right? Because these recommendations are for the ideal scenario, but no company has the ideal scenario. So I could create an onboarding sequence for you for the ideal scenario, but if you are not able to implement it, it's a waste of money for you and it's a waste of effort for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Out of four, they told me they could even only implement one. The rest were out of their chain of commands, right? Mm -hmm. Totally cool, totally legit. As a strategist, it was my job to find a way through to conversions and and form a path through whatever uh, roadblocks they had or limitations they had. And so we did just uh, through that. And um, yeah, sorry, what was the question? Yeah, Again, like just pra- practical examples that that you can like think of when it comes to like using emails to fix some of those problems. So like you've you shared like four of those like potential problems to HubSpot. They said that like there's one that we can like potentially fix. Yeah. So like the product team maybe is like focusing on fixing some of that in the product, or maybe it's like outside of the product or whatever. But as like the team is trying to fix it, how do you use email to kind of like reinforce that or like further fix it? Yeah. So again, they told me they could only implement one thing, right? So their fundamental email problem has stayed the same. Mm -hmm. They've just told me out of my four suggestions on how to fix it, we could only use one. So now my job is to make the most of that one recommendation and solve it with email. So, um, and then, so we we learned to focus on uh, on that, right? We used that one medium that I was recommending and created an an onboarding sequence accordingly. This is all like super fascinating. I think working with with SaaS companies, like what you just described is kind of an ideal scenario for product-led marketers and product-led growth, right? Like, you know, making sure the connective tissue between what's going on in your product and going on in your communications. In your own experience, how have you seen product-led growth? Like it's it's definitely trending more and more as a term. How have you seen it influence SaaS uh, email marketers, whether it's their copy or maybe they're just, just their approach? I am actually surprised that you're saying that because I'm customer-led. Like I believe in customer-led growth, right? Um, But I found that there's a lot of overlap. And for me, at least the way I see it, if you put your customers first, you won't be highlighting your features. You will be focusing on the problems that you can solve for your um, users, right? So um, I'm going to share an example of a mental health app that I did an onboarding sequence for. When we did the voice of customer research, we've the app was running your mental health practice online from one platform, right? Right now, the industry, there's no other app that does it. You have to bundle together two or three softwares to run your um, online practice. But this app lets you do everything, right? So from accepting payments to um, uh, scheduling um, appointments to prescriptions, insurance, all of that. And so we thought when, when this brand came to me, they thought that they needed an onboarding sequence that walked their mental health practitioners through setting up their uh, practice online, right? Mm-hmm. That would be the end of the onboarding. But when we did the voice of customer research, we found out that they were struggling to imagine what 
running an online practice would look like. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, I wasn't focused on creating a, a, a feature focused um, onboarding sequence. I decided to create an aspirational onboarding email sequence where we painted a picture about how amazing and easy their life would be once their online practice was set up. And it was so mm -hmm. easy to schedule um, appointments, to prescribe, to help their uh, patients, basically. Right. And so if you want to help your patients, if you want to make your life easy, set this, 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 and this up. Mm -hmm. Right. Very and cool. so it was it was a messaging thing where I'm, I'm still giving them imparting the same information to them that we needed to impart in terms of like yeah. certain they needed to do certain things for their online practice to to go live. Mm -hmm. And that was important. We always knew we needed to uh, include that in, in the onboarding sequence. But we found a way to say it in a way where their users would care about it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that has always been paramount. Very yeah, cool. fascinating. Must have been uh, pretty rewarding to to work with a, a mental health app. Um, something like switching gears a little bit and, and talking about like some of the companies that you work with and maybe some of the companies that you don't. Um, I love that on your site, you actually have a section about companies that you don't work with. I'm yeah. not an email strategist or copywriter. If you're tobacco, gambling, alcohol, or arms ammunition company, like don't come to me. Um, but what advice do you have for kind of early freelancers that are some of our listeners right now that don't want to work with specific brands like because of their values like you, but maybe are uh, like a little bit afraid of being this bold this early in their kind of like freelance journey. What advice do you have for some of those folks? So you don't have to say it as bluntly as I've said it. Like you could just say, I am booked out. And here's a recommendation if you want to give a recommendation or just simply say no. No is a perfectly acceptable answer. I'm busy. I can't do it perfectly acceptable. It's not rude. They will not be offended. Um, and so these values were always there for me ever since I started freelancing, right? But it was only in the last two, two, two to three years that I got comfortable saying it out loud. And before then, I was just turning away the stuff. And honestly, no alcohol company was coming to me looking at, you know, who I am. Mm -hmm. um, but vaping companies would come to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I had to turn them away. And I um, did not tell any of them why. It's mm -hmm. just like, I'm sorry, I'm booked out for the next few months. Um, and you know, this, uh, I can't take it on. And that's Very it. Cool. That's enough. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think it's something else that you do uh, for your freelance build business that I think is brilliant is um, kind of girl education. Um, yeah. Everyone that works with you gets to donate 2% of their project fees uh, to the Malala Fund in your name. Talk to us through that a little bit and maybe some of the other ways that you've like learned to give back as you've kind of grown in your freelance business. Yeah, so I've, um, I grew up in Pakistan. Uh, my parents, it was, it's a super patriarchal society, right? My parents had four daughters, no sons, pitied by everybody, everybody <laughs> right? Poor man. Um, but my dad is a strong believer in the power of education. So even though he is still a very much part of the patriarchal society where his thought process was, I'm going to get my daughters married off, right? But I'm giving them this education just in case I'm not there or their husband passes away, they need to know enough to support themselves. 
what he didn't realize was that he was unleashing four feminist women into the world who will go on to do these amazing things, right? My older sister went on to do her PhD in epidemiology. Um, and, you know, uh, I am the first girl to in my family to have a business and then make it a success to the level that it has. My younger sisters are doing equally different and amazing things. And so um, for me, girl education has always been important. Without my education, I wouldn't be where I am. And so... I have always been supporting people and um, causes whenever I can, especially when it comes to women and uh, education. But with this, I just made it public, right? And so my clients, I donate 2% in my client's name. It used to be the Malala Fund, but I realized my dollars will convert more for a Pakistani NGO. Mm. And so recently I've shifted to that, like I will donate 2% to um, an NGO that create, builds free schools all across Pakistan. Um, and I will choose one of the, their girl, girls only school to donate to. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the things. And it's important, like, and it, what it does is it also attracts the right type of clients to me. Like that was not my intention when I started doing it, but it is. And it's, it's super appreciated by everybody who doesn't want to support education. Very cool. It's super cool that you do that. Um, it, I'm looking at the time here and uh, this yeah. conversation has flown by. <laughs> I feel like we could jam on email and like your freelance business uh, and, and for the, for another couple of hours here. But uh, yeah, I definitely want to be mindful of your time. Uh, JT, I'll let you uh, take it away with the last question. Sure. There, well, um, we, we asked this of all of our guests and I think you highlighted some of this in terms of the clients that you work with that you're really uh, driven to to make sure that you're you know, architecting your consulting business and how you spend your time. So you have two kids, you run your own business, you're running boot camps and classes. How do you stay successful and happy in your career and life? By being okay with dropping a lot of balls. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm, and, and I have a one track mind, I cannot multitask very well. So if my business is doing well, that means my family life is suffering. If I'm quiet online, that means I'm focusing on my family and I'm taking time off or working less hours, right? So it's a delicate balance that I'm still struggling to find. Um, And also not something I'm proud of, but my kids eat cereal more nights for dinner than I want to admit. It's just the way things are, right? Um, Part of it is time zone. Part of it is me being a company of one. Part of the reason I am okay with dropping all these balls is because I want my girls to see that what is possible for them, right? Mm-hmm. I was never a very good student. I don't tell my girls you need to top as long as you're passing with like average marks, I'm happy. Um, but also, so in Pakistan, you're either a doctor, uh, an engineer, or maybe a lawyer, right? I, I want them to know that those are not just the only paths or, or an MBA, sorry, the, the country's filled with MBAs. Um, and so they can take whatever paths they want to take. And it was not a luxury that I had. Um, and I just was lucky enough to fall into freelancing and then email. Um, but yeah, so it's it's one of the, I'm, I'm the way I see it, I'm setting a good examples for my girls. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. Love it. Yeah. Great answer. Uh, I think maybe that's going to be like one of the the top highlights from the episode. It's more than okay to, to drop a few balls when you've juggling a bunch of stuff and so many people uh, need to hear that. Yeah, totally. And, uh, yeah, I'll say like, like John said, the cereal for, for dinner is uh, 100% okay in my books. My girls feel the same way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Summer. Uh, I'll uh, I'll link out to your Twitter. Um, I think that you're a must follow on Twitter. Not even just for like the marketing insights, but like just the the funniness, the hilariousness. I think that like your your wedding story is like a thread that everyone should read. <laughs> And um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'll, I'll link out to your bootcamp as well as your uh, emails done right newsletter. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for your time. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. <laughs>